Thank you for tuning in. There's really no way to succinctly summarize the conversation had as part of this episode, other than if you're a leader interested in strategic planning and leadership development, you're not going to want to miss this. And like so many others, you're likely going to want to listen to this episode more than once and probably take several pages of notes while doing so. Our guest is John Doring, founder and managing principal of J. Doring & Company, and he provides so many valuable insights and meaningful strategies that can help you and your firm. And again, like so many of our episodes, the dialogue format brings you right into the conversation to the point where you might even forget that you're listening to a podcast and want to jump right in as two passionate industry consultants talk shop and share value. So without any further delay, let's do it. Welcome to AEC Leadership Today, the podcast designed exclusively for engineering, architecture, and construction industry leaders who want to stay relevant and effective. The show takes on the most pressing issues facing the AEC industry and was created to help you and your firm grow and prosper in the 21st century. The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never-ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of AEC Leadership Today. Today, we'll be speaking with John Doring, founder and managing principal of J. Doring & Company, and we'll be talking about navigating and excelling through change. Welcome to the podcast, John. Hi, Pete. How are you doing? Great. Um, well, it's wonderful that you're here um, and excited to get into our conversation. And so listeners know, um, over the past couple of years, you know, I've heard your name in several different conversations. And last year at the CXPS conference in North Carolina, we were finally able to meet and we've stayed in touch and continued to have some, you know, conversations where I feel like we're really aligned on a number of issues and items that we'll talk about today. But before we get going, can you share a little bit about you and um, your career and what brought you to where you are today working with AEC firms and leaders? Yeah, sure, sure. I appreciate that. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a scientist by background and, and training. Um, I was a geologist. And when I got out of college, I went to work for Exxon and I was a production exploration geologist for uh, quite a number of years. And then I moved over into the environmental business, which is where I first got connected to kind of the world of civil engineering and environmental engineering. And I was so, and so one of my touch points to this industry is I, I was a client once, right. With a sort of a $50 million spend every year in environmental. So I have a bit of perspective of that. Um, I did some other things in my career. I got really involved in sales and sales management at one point, technical sales, uh, business counselor to distributors that led me to start a business in the, in the wholesale distribution space, uh, which was an interesting sort of uh, kind of, you know, turn into something different. Um, I was recruited along the way by some folks that owned an environmental consulting firm. And so for three years, I, I was an executive on that team and handled sort of marketing and strategy in the business development piece of that business, the business side of that business. I've really been kind of for a long, long time. I've worked in technical organizations, uh, but I've always been much, much more interested in the business and the improvement of the business and kind of that side rather than, than, than the technical chops. I was never all that good at that piece of it, I don't think. Um, 
and then uh, and then I kind of ran into some people um, that were consulting to this space. I thought well, that was kind of interesting because strategy and leadership and operations transformation have always been sort of important uh, sort of components of who I am and what I like to focus on. And uh, so that led me to eventually getting connected with, and I worked for a number of years with uh, with Zweig White, the consulting firm, and. Uh, and I've also had a little stint with PSMJ over the over that same period of time, and I've been on my own for about seven or eight years, um, consulting primarily to professional services firms, and many of them are here in the AE space, right? So architects and engineers and scientists and planners and and environmental consultants and things like that. So uh, it's been kind of an interesting journey. I, I unlike a lot of people who consult in this space. I never had a job really per se, kind of working as a project manager and billing my time to clients. And, uh, but I've, I've been in and around it for a long time now. So I'm kind of, I, I feel like and think about myself as sort of, I, I, I understand and get the business and kind of connect with people on a, on, on a project level, but I'm still an outsider, if that makes any sense. But, right, which could be a, a great perspective to have, especially, you know, a lot of practitioners learning and needing to understand more about the business and the big picture perspectives and how some of the strategy and the marketing and the branding all sort of flow together in, in, in making your practice successful. So there's I, I, tremendous value in that piece. Well, the other thing is, you know, I spent the first half of my career working in a really big corporation at Exxon, right? And so I always tell people I sort of have big company DNA in me. Um, and although I railed against the bureaucracy and the rules and the regulations through much of that time, the second half of my career has really been working with entrepreneurial professional services firms that, as you know, right, are often built around uh, you know, they're autonomous and decentralized and they don't have much systems and structure and they're kind of a, a sometimes a hot mess, right? Uh, and so... And now you're almost advocating for those rules and processes and procedures. Yeah, my, my business and my shtick has become in some sense a little bit like, I, you know, I'm not here to help you create a bureaucracy, but if we could see a little bit of this maturation of process and system into it in the right ways, scaled to the right size for your organization, you could really take your business to the next level. Yeah, right. Right. And, and along the way, so you've done a lot of consulting and business consulting, but you wrote a book, um, you know, several years ago um, called Fast Future, 10 Uber Trends Changing Everything in Business and Our World, which, you know, I'd like to share with you, share if you could share with us, you know, what that book is about and um, why, why you wrote that. Um, you know, several years ago. I mean, we can see the pace of change. We can see some of the major disruptions in industries, but, but you were writing about this before it was obvious. Um, mm -hmm. What got you to the point of wanting to write that book? And, and uh, can you share a little bit about what some of those 10 trends are? Sure. Well, I've, 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 if I go back to much of this time, um, I've, I've always been something of a sort of an amateur futurist that way. I've always been really interested in what's next, what's ahead, how to how do great organizations kind of look out on the horizon and, and determine where they need to go next in a, in a, in a changing world? I'm also kind of what, what we'd call a progressive futurist, which means not only do I see a change ahead, but my instinct is that change is good, right? It's opportunity. It's not, it's not, it, it, it certainly is threat, but I see, you know, that if you can kind of figure it out and get positioned right, then there's, there's things that there's going to be real winners in that. 
at the same time, then working in this professional services space, I also began to see, well, there's a bit of a conflict here because it doesn't look like very many of these firms are well positioned for the future, not really change oriented. Um, you know, it's a business that's been in stasis largely for a long period of time. You know, I, I'll sometimes kid and say, you know, the only, the only change that's happened in this world, in the AE world since World War II is that we now draw with a computer rather than with a pencil anymore. Now, lots of, lots of senior executives will say, oh, there's been all kinds of change. Yeah, you bet. But not like transformational change. If you think about what happened in the auto industry in the 70s or, or the steel industry or the fact that the whole entire tech sector, as we know and think about it today, is only 15 years old. And, you know, right. right. And so this has been a very stable business. Uh, you know, kind of the business model has been really similar. And so, you know, there were, there were for me sort of two really big findings in my research for the book Fast Future. The first was, okay, I see lots and lots of big change out on the horizon, arising on, on the shore. And you're right, 10, 10, 12 years ago, when I started getting interested in this, I think some of these things were less obvious than they're getting to be today. I get that reinforcement all the time in, when I'm giving speeches. I'll, I'll, one of the stories I'll share, one of the constructs I'll kind of put out there, people in the audience will say, well, that's already happened. You know, 10 years ago, I was able to say things and people go, wow, I don't know what you're talking about, right? So, so it, some things have arrived, have become more obvious. But so, so, so sort of finding number one was big change on the horizon, not much change going on in the industry, therefore conflict coming, right? Just, you know, big crash. That was, that was number one. But number two might even be more interesting than that. It's like, because I really wanted to know what do really great organizations do about this? What are the top firms doing? And my sense was, and the research and the feedback and the work I've done in other kind of bits and pieces of this long over, over time have suggested, you know, these top, it's not as though these people that own and run these really great firms, really successful firms, it's not as though they're out trying to outguess the future or, or, or figure out exactly what's going to happen. Instead, they spend most of their time and energy working on what they can control, you know, building the kind of organization, team, people, business that can survive in a variety of uncertain futures, right? So I thought that was, to me, that was a really big kind of epiphany. It's like, if you want to be successful in the future, do you try to figure out the future or control the future? Or do you just work on doing the kinds of things that we can do? <laughs> so, so you were, so you, you, you see the, you see the conflict. There's big change coming yeah. in an industry that is not necessarily naturally adaptable to change or hasn't been. Um, and then there's firms, is it firms that are adaptable or in the business in general that are adaptable, but they're, it's because they, they're really concentrating and, and they're knowing what they're good at. They're, they're focusing on what they can control and then they adapt to the change yeah. coming in. They're just yeah. able to see it because they have more control of what they can like control. Really, what I found was really, really successful, great firms, the ones that you would emulate and admire and want to be like, what do they do? They figure out really clearly who they are, why they're here, what they're trying to accomplish, right? And they stick to that and they build then, okay, so then what kind, if that's what's important to us and that's who we want to be, 
what do we have to build around that so that the, the, the world and the market and the competition and all those external factors don't kind of screw this up, right? And that means building an adaptable and resilient and sort of flexible organization in, on, a, on a bunch of different uh, dimensions. But the, the real key epiphany for me was it's, it's about focusing on the business and making the business better. Uh, so I'm going to get to that because that's probably something along the lines of, well, that's really never changed, but yet we're, we're in a sea of change. I mean, what, what are, if, if you th think back on what you had in the book or how you see things today, do you see some major changes though that firms do need to adapt to? I mean, you keep hearing things about yeah. like, you know, AI, artificial intelligence, what's that, what's that, what's that going to happen? You know, how is that going to affect, what do we need to do? But do you see like big picture changes that firms really are going to have to adapt to? I, I do. I do. And many of, I have to, you know, to be candid, many of them are still, you know, knock down, drag out battles with client firms, right? Arguing, debating, still trying to figure out what is, where do we need to be on this? But I'll give you a few examples. Um, one, uh, one, just so many organizations have been built around a, a fundamental instinct that local is good. The business is local, got to be close to the customer, right? We got to have, you know, we got to have people in the community, and all, and all that, right? So, to a lot, sort of a local, all things being equal, local really counts. Well, now we're up against, yeah, but it's hard to get talent into that place. Um, or maybe that maybe that locality it doesn't serve us. Or how do we get into another locality if we don't have an office there? So the business model of being sort of local led a lot of firms to be sort of really diversified across lots of businesses and lots of clients to be in that local market, right? But now we have this issue of, well, how do we, how do we grow geographically? How do we collaborate across our offices? How do we shift work around? Not, right? And what, I, what you can see in other sectors of our economy is when you break down those local barriers. And I like to say the, big, the hardest part about globalization is the first three feet. That's the distance between me and you. Right. That's the distance between two cubicles. Once you break that down and every engineer can tell you every right can, or every architect can tell you why it's hard to work with the, with the guys over in Pittsburgh or the ones in Cleveland. Right. You bet. There's all kinds of constraints. Once you figure out how to break that down, almost immediately, the whole world becomes like that. Right. Mm -hmm. If I can work, if I'm if I'm in um, Philadelphia and I can figure out how to work with a team in New York, then I might as well work with the people in Shanghai. It's about the same thing. Right. And so one, of, and when I combine that with this issue of where is the talent and where do they want to be? I think we're really rapidly headed to what I call disassociation, which means, uh, you know, kind of, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter where you're physically located. Um, and there's a lot of people in our industry that are going to push back in that and say, you don't, you don't get it, right? You, uh, if you're going to work with the department of, uh, you know, the water department here in this town, you got to be right down the street from them. Right. Um, and there might be the project manager or a lead. It might be advantageous to be there. But, I mean, there, there is a slow, you know, we're not going to be geographically business center focused. We're moving to a more practice centered folks uh, focus right. and, and folks are serving from around and we're looking at, you know, remote uh, working arrangements and trying to you know be flexible with our workforce. So slowly 
we're trying to adapt, you know, and is it an executive function to figure that out? Is it buried in HR? I mean, are we, is it this team? Is it, but, but yeah, I mean, those are the, I think you've just nailed the, the topics, you know, how do we do business and where is the talent to conduct the business? Because they might not be in every town and we can't have an office in every town anyway. Well, see, there, there you go. See, there's another thing. If you're going to sit here and argue that, that local really counts, okay, I'm cool with that. But then let's build around that strategy because that's what Starbucks does, right? And so they don't try to – so, so, my, so my friends that say local is what really matters then almost immediately are trying to also grow over in this other city where they don't have a local presence. So you either go for it or you don't, right? Right. And, I, and it, it gets into... You need a bunch of offices and a bunch of people and you got to figure out how to hire all those people, right? Right. And it must, you know, you get the overhead costs associated with it. But I, I mean, I think as building relationships, I mean, it's, it's not necessarily the quantity of time, it's the quality of time. So if you have a remote workforce, but the, the amount of time you spend is less, but the quality is higher because it's well-planned out, it's strategic, it's very effective, well, then it's effective. And by the way, we have the benefit of providing the best talent on your job in a way that minimizes our fixed costs and allows us to hire more flexible people. So, I mean, there are advantages, but I can see the mindset shift, even just thinking about it from just a tactical work perspective. But then I guess there might be a benefit to put it in the context of how business in general is changing. And and maybe there's a little bit of comfort in that and maybe even some, a a playbook to follow with how other companies have done it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's true. That's true. I I mean, that, that, that's just one I just pulled out. I think there, there are a, another really important thing to be thinking about is the diversity of the team. And um, if you think about so if a firm is built around a primary core discipline, it's a civil engineering firm, let's say, right? Um, then then it, in that kind of an organization, it becomes really, really hard to say, well, you know, we could offer... What if, what if the clients wants a different kind, a more comprehensive solution? And, and my joke that I've told many, many times over the years is if you ask a civil engineer what they mean, what you mean by diversity, they say, well, maybe a structural engineer, right? That, that's building out the team. No, but what about, I'm thinking, what about economists? What about financial planners? What about poets? What about professional project managers? What, you know, sort of bringing a whole team here that represents more comprehensively the clients' issues, what's really driving them, right? That's really super, if you think about this, that's really super hard for the civil engineering firm to do, right? Because they say, I can't hire an economist because I can't tell you whether or not their utilization is going to be very high in month three or month six, right? But let's think about it from the other end. This company, this let's say a tech company decides they want to get into infrastructure, right? They want to, they're going to get into road building. So they're all sitting around the table and they go, well, what do we need to get in road building? Well, we need a bunch of transportation engineers. Well, their, their instinct is let's hire them. They don't, they don't have, they're not, they're not constrained by in the same way by the status quo. And by the way, there's not anything particularly unique about, about AE providers defending their turf. This is the challenge when you're always in defense mode. Right. 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 right? The, the outside disruptor doesn't, is not carrying the, the baggage of it has to be this way, or I have to protect the system or, you know, right. They're just looking at ways to change the game. And right. uh, so that's just another example, I think, and also diversity and all the other kinds of ways we think about it. 
right? Because I think diversity and in, in, in gender and ethnicity and, 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 and discipline, all those things, what they really boil down to, this is another sort of chapter in the book, is what we need in the firm of the future is diversity of ideas. We need more people around the table that can think about these big challenges and problems in new and innovative ways. And that's very, very hard in a traditional firm where sort of everybody was minted out in a similar background and experience level and kind of think the same way, right? Right. Hard in a traditional firm, but even harder in a particular office of a traditional firm to yeah. be able to put that together. And you're kind of constrained by exactly who's in that particular team. And, right. Are you seeing any, any movement in uh, firms you know, we're talking, we're talking more about the flexible work environment and going part-time. What about the use of the gig economy? Have you, you know, on basically on freelancers doing electrical work or structural work, are you seeing that more and more um, in, in your travels or um, at least hints that that's becoming a thing um, to, to reduce, you know, some of the, the holding costs of talent and give people the freedom of their own schedule? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, my answer is yes and no. Uh, I can, if I go all the way back now, 12 years ago, 13 years ago, I remember we did a lot before the, the big recession. Um, the organization I was with, we did a big comprehensive project on how firms in the AE space look at outsourcing and even offshoring. And at the time, it was a really, first of all, back then, um, and I think this is probably still true today. Only about 10% of firms had any real hands-on experience with that kind of comp, you know, sort of strategic outsourcing. They made this decision on purpose, right? Um, so not very much. There wasn't getting a lot of attention and a lot of penetration. But what I found really interesting and stuck with me over the years is those few firms who did, they were pretty bullish about the future of that. So once you step into that and start trying it, then you kind of get over the fears and the challenges and the risk. I even remember one CEO saying, you know what, we, we outsourced a piece of our business to India and we had all the kinds of problems you would expect, communications and culture and, and all kinds of things, right? And he said, and rework, there were mistakes. He said, he said John, we did 30% of the job over again, but it was 50% cheaper. So despite all of the issues, you know, I'm going to try that again, right? Um, I do, I see that done some today, but it's, I would say less strategic and more expedient. You know, we just got to go out and hire somebody because we just can't get the talent and the staff fast enough here. So we don't, we don't, we don't, we have no other choice. We have to outsource this work or we, or we can't get it done. Or we can't get it done. I don't, I don't see as much of the, a big strategic choice would be saying, you know what? we're pretty good at this and we get it done, but we really shouldn't be doing this anymore, right? I really should reposition those assets into something else, right? That's a different, what I call the difference between coulda and shoulda, right? And I don't, I don't, I think that's very, very hard because all of the disciplines, all of the disciplines kind of have this, you know, like a structure, like a, like a civil engineer is really closely tied with survey work. Right, and an environmental engineer is really closely tied with the people who go out in the field and sample the wells, and a and a high design architect is really closely tied with the people in the firm that do production. Right, and and, and each one of us defines our 
profession and, you know, as kind of being end to end like that, right? So this is, I think, another one, if I was going to make another, here's another thing I see coming, um, is this kind of, I think the mar increasingly the market is going to push back on this idea that, that you are the right person to do all those things, right? I, I see more choice being required, whether you make those choices proactively and strategically, and, and they're all hard. <laughs> So you could, as a firm, you could be like, listen, well, I, uh, so, I mean, just kind of looking what you said. So we, we do, we do survey and we do civil engineering and we do the, you know, the, the, the construction administration that that's just what we do. Um, you know, clients might be more discerning to say, no, we only really want you for the civil engineering. So, and it, and so from a business planning perspective, we can't, we've got to be able to just provide that service. And so our ability to either provide in-house survey or be agile enough to be able to use outsource survey or the client survey, um, that, that's the tactical decision. And so maybe we, right. we look at how we decouple ourselves, even though all things being equal, we like to provide all the suite of services, but tactically we've got to be able to provide one or, or two or three of, you know, of, of all of the, of the five services that we can. Well, provide. what you have to be able to do at the end of the day is deliver something to a client that they think is valuable. And if you can make the case that having all that stuff combined and packaged into one provides value to the client, great. Realize though that it's, that it's complex to deliver that diversity of services, right? Those, those are actually, there's actually a lot of different success factors in sort of what's the head you know, high-end head work thinking and, and sort of in the field pair of hands kind of thinking, right? The difference in being a consultant and being a contractor, the difference between, uh, you know, right? White right. collar, blue collar. You know, and it gets into the, you know, whether you're d diversifying versus niching. And yeah. is, the, is there riches in the niches? We are the best at what we do. And, and we do this in several locations, but this is what we do versus, you know, we do a lot, we, we do really well in a lot of fields, even though they kind of have different overhead rates associated with it. And, you know, but it is into that element. Um, and whether it's driven by technology change or driven by just the way clients perceive business and want to buy business. I mean, it's all things. So, I mean, whether it be a technology or whether it be just business strategy, I mean, what's the right venue to think about this stuff? Do, do you think it, it it is formalized strategic planning where even if we want to, stay with what we're doing because it, it's kind of worked pretty well and but we're yeah. not sure because of these trends or these other opportunities um and even just to confirm that we're on the right path we're going to go through a strategic planning process and talk about these technology trends etc yeah that's the way i think about it. it i mean ultimately the answer to all of i'm not i don't mean to say in my comments here that i think i have the only answer or that you have to do this or have to do that what I think is super important is that leadership teams get into the room and argue and debate and think and collect data and analyze and come back and debate and think some more because what, what happens in the absence of that is should we do this or that? We'll do both. Right. Should we go after, you know, and, and because the instinct of many technical people, right. And creative people is, Hey, I'd like to try that. I think we could do that, right? 
And so you agglomerate over time until you get this business that's very diverse and we're in all kinds of different things. And we've answered the phone for 40 years now and we've always said yes and we've always figured it out. And it's been pretty successful, right? But my point is, my, my paradigm is, when I look into the future, I see faster, more uncertain, more complex, more competitive, um, harder to get talent, you know, all kinds of change that, that, that say the business is going to get more challenging. So I ought to focus more on the kinds of things that are most important to us. All right. And that's the, the things you can control. And you mentioned things, you know, like, um, you know, knowing who you are, what you do, why you do it. And are those and, and the things that you can um, that that you can control? Do you do you is that part of, you know, your advice to, OK, there's all this change happening when we do strategic planning or think about stuff. You need to know what you stand for. And at the end of the day you know, what you want, what type of work you want to be doing. I mean, how do you go from a, I mean, I like that analogy just for 40 years, we've been kind of adding value and having different business centers. Okay. Let's think about this. There's change coming faster. Now what? Okay. We're going to go do some strategic planning. How do we whittle that down? How do we figure out what is our core mission? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And is there this sort of a basic starting point? Well, I, yeah, so the way I think about it, if I were to draw this on the board, I would say this starts in the center, right at the center of my values. That's who I am. And we often call those core values, right? And those are things that are fundamental about us and our nature, and they don't change. They shouldn't be changing all the time, right? This is who we are. The next layer around that I would put is mission or purpose and answer to the question, why? What's really driving the passion around here, right? Why do we get up and do all this hard stuff? And there's a, there's, a diff- there's a couple of differences here. One is asking these, there's two questions that sound similar that are really, really different. The question I want to ask is what do I exist to do? The question we ask on a day-to-day basis is what do we do to exist? What do I exist to do? What do we do to exist? Think about what are the kind of projects I really want to have? Mm-hmm. And what are the kind of projects I take all the time to pay the bills, right? And there's tension in that in most firms, right? But the really great firms tend to be driven by, and they tend to be on this path to figure out, I want to do more of the stuff that, that I was put here on the earth to do, right? Right. That's and the be one. fully aligned in that. And, That's and one. Be, right. right. My next level around that would be vision, sort of a similar kind of thing, but this is a different question. Where do we want to go? You know, what's it look like in five years? What's the big objectives? And you just hit on something. You just said something that's really profoundly important. My own personal mission and vision, there's no dissonance there because everybody inside my head understands that. If you're a company of one, there's no problem. As soon as you get employee number one, as soon as you got two people, as soon as you have a leadership team, right? Now we have this issue of, is there clarity around what these things mean? Do we have any consensus? Are we aligned on this? And you know as much as I do, right? In the typical firm on the typical day, we're aligned on half this stuff. And not on, you know, that's really, really super hard work. And I think any kind, what you call it strategic planning or whatever it is you call it, that's the linchpin of it to me, building a foundational framework that says, this is, this is who I am, why I'm here and what I'm trying to do. 
And another thing I'll just throw in is I'm not talking about creating a mission statement. This exercise where you get into a room and argue about whether the fourth word ought to be a V or an A. It's a concept. It's an idea. It's a story. If you come out with a, you know, a clever way of saying that, uh, you know, and sort of captured a little bumper sticker, that's great, but you don't have to have that. Right. And when you, right. You know, and, and that's the, that, that's an outcome. That's kind of a fun yeah. exercise. Once you have all the building blocks in place and you really know, you can come up with a clever way to say that with the least amount of words. I mean, that, that that's kind of a fun exercise when there's full clarity and alignment on how, what we are, because then there's almost excitement and then you can just sort of play off each other. And, and that's a fun part. But if, if you've got to get to that place, you got to get there first. That's not where you start. If you try to start there, let's come up with a mission statement. I'll tell you what you're going to, I can tell you what your mission statement is going to say. And it's going to say, um, we, we're here to serve customers, to provide a place of employment for people and to make some money. And your mission statement will look just like the quick lube down the street or the dentist or, right? It can't, you know, that's, a, that's not super valuable. But right. I have clients, and I bet you do too, where you can just feel it in the building. They're purpose-driven, right? right. Which is attractive. It, 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 and it's engaging for the leadership team as, as much as it is other people coming. Because, I mean, frankly, I mean, it's engaging principles is, is a little bit of a, a trick today. You know, after all these years, I mean, we have to love what we do again, and we're in a different season of life. And um, how are you bringing that in and then being able to have that energy and excitement, that engagement that engages the next tier down, and then they right. get excited, and, but it all gets into alignment. But if you have, if you don't have this core vision, and you're really not on the same page, it's a lot harder. So, I mean, so we can control that. We can work through a process. What are some of the other things that just um, kind of, what, what hasn't changed in business that leaders really just need to focus on to be successful today? Yeah, it's a good question too. Um, and I have another presentation, uh, yeah, the seven cru- crucial questions and it's sort of the subtitle is what's not changing in a world where everything's changing. Um, so I think, I think it's always, especially after you're kind of focused a while in this kind of mishy-mashy part of it, right, that, that, that frustrates all this, the, the technical people. We should always remind ourselves, look, first of all, I don't do any of that stuff for any other reason than I, I'm, a, I'm sort of a hard-nosed guy, a business guy. At the end of the day, what I'm trying to do is move the needle on the bottom line, you know? What I tell people is my mission is – to help organizations and their leaders plan for the future, grow their business, and make more money. And I see those in a lot, <laughs> right? So there's no sense in planning for the future if I can't connect the dots and say, ultimately, I'm doing this for success, for sustainable business right. success. Not just because some MBA program told me that every company needs a mission. Right. Well, I mean, right. and the mission is just an alignment tool. Part of the tool to get right. us to what I want is a successful, sustainable resilient business that can survive in the fast future. That's my, that's my, uh, my, go- my ultimate goal. So, so knowing that, having now built this, what I call the strategic framework, this foundational kind of stuff, I then come the next step, I say, you know what? Fundamentally, let's not lose sight of the fact that this business is about getting work, doing work, and building a team that can continually do that. So there's, those are three buckets for me, right? Business development, marketing, project management operations, and all the people's systems. 
And when you lose sight of that, when you sort of sex this thing up to more than, you know, at the end of the day. Right? Right, but if you start there and you don't have alignment, you, you might get incrementally better or you might take one step forward and two step back two steps backwards because people aren't on the same page or this division does it different than that division. So you can't start there, but you got to get there pretty quick. That, and, and that's a very common mistake, right? So what I would say is, look, you can, if you think about this, if you said it, if you said a good strategic planning process needs these two things, it needs a sort of mission vision thing on the one hand and it needs this strategies and actions and a work plan and, you know, deliverables and deadlines and it needs both of those things, right? If you just do the first one and not the second one, what you end up with is touchy-feely team building exercise. There's nothing to do. The motion sort of gets let out of the balloon. And if you do that two or three times, you'd build this real cynical workforce, right? Let's don't do that again. Right. On the other hand, you can sort of not do the first one and just do the second one. And, and engineers are good at this. <laughs> Here's a list of the 50 things we need to work on. Um, but there's no motivation because there's no big context. There's no, all this stuff's hard and we all have full-time jobs already. So, you know, okay. So I'm supposed to be working on what standardization or, you know, coming up with the, you know, the design specs or something along those lines, or how are we going to get performance reviews kind of queued up, you know, all these kinds of things. I never get around to it because the mission and the vision is what drives the motivation to, make that stuff happen. So I, I really agree with you. You gotta, you gotta have both pieces of that. And, and that's the magic, if you will, of doing what you and I do is trying to lead teams and help and support and collaborate with groups of leaders to get all that put together in a way that's special. Right. So, I mean, I, and I've, I've heard statistics, I don't know how anecdotal or actual based on data, but, you know, 95% of strategic plans fail or fail to be implemented. And I can see that a chunk of those are, well, the mission and vision just wasn't aligned. People didn't buy in. And so therefore, once the fanfare is over, I'm just not going to do that. I mean, I can't, I'm already a doer seller. I already got two jobs and then I can't do the third one. And so whatever the case is, but if, if there is alignment and we do agree and we've sort of focused on the business pieces, do you see things, you know, are, are there typical derailers of why strategic plans, even if done really well and, yeah. and, and, and by the book, you know, by the modern book at that, why they just aren't implemented? Well, Yes. I, so I, 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 I also anecdotally have seen and experienced that data. It's, I, I call this the one-third, one-third rule. And what I say is, it is empirically, let's, if you start with this notion, so say about a, about a third of firms that start down the road through this exercise, get the first part right. They actually put a plan together in all the comprehensive ways we've talked about. One-third. The other... The other ones make the mistake of only having little bits and pieces of it done or never getting it done, right? But then only a third of those actually do a good job of implementing, executing around that. And so a third times a third is 9%, right? So that's, that's where you get to your, and I think that's about right. Now, I always looked at that and said, man, if I could find anything in this business that only 10% of companies do and it's important, there's super competitive advantage in that. If we could just figure out how to do that, <laughs> we'd be way ahead, right? So your specific question is, what, what's, what's the, I think that the biggest impediment to implementation is that businesses think about productivity all wrong. 
let's not, let's use the right word though in this industry utilization all wrong right so if you and i if you've got some work plan ideas uh, uh no, i'm sorry responsibilities in a strategic plan and i have some too you're working on project management operations i'm working on business development initiatives right we're both principals in the firm we come together for these update meetings i come in i haven't done what i said so what i say to you pete is I'm sorry I didn't get this done, but I was busy, busy, right? I'm off the hook. Everybody gives me a little high five. You, you don't hold me to account because you're going to say the same thing in two months about your situation. And we all have on board this kind of paradigm of busy is good. If your utilization goal is 60 and you come in at 70 is good. Right, firm made more money and, and all of that. My argument is we audit for for leaders, for for enterprise wide managers and leaders of the firm. What we ought to say is, you know what, ten percent over utilization is just as bad as ten percent under because I was depending on you <laughs> to do other important things, and if they aren't important, then we should take them off the list. Right, because what, what's, what the important is, is the investment in the future. It's the investment in efficiency and long-term productivity and engagement and all those important factors. Whereas if, if we're just busy, oh, it looks like a great quarter, looks like a great year, but we're setting ourselves up for not such a great efficient year next year or two years right. from right. now. And as a leader, that's our job. It's not just, I mean, it's, it's different if you're in a different spot in the organization, an extra 10 points on your utilization. But if you're a leader... I, I agree with you. you the you're the firm one of your major functions. The company is depending on you to do something else that we all agreed was important. So I think that that peer-to-peer -peer accountability is probably one of the most important things. When people don't do things they said they were going to do in the internal initiatives, the strategic plan, it's not because they're bad people. It's not because they didn't want to do it typically, right? It's, to, it's that we're overstressed, we're overworked, we've got too much to do, we've got too many responsibilities, we're in too many hats, all those things, right? We're just not, here's how you can prove this out, right? Change the dynamic and say, now, same situation, only it's just me and you, Pete, we have a business. The two of us have a business. If you don't do what you said you were going to do, we're not going to make any money this week, right? If I don't do what I said I'm going to do, you're going to have to go home and tell your wife, this is why this is, you know, there's no paycheck, right? That changes everything. <laughs> then suddenly we get really good at peer level accountability, right? Because it's real. Right. But we, we would have to buy into the, buy into the greater mission. And yes, I do have that client deliverable. And yes, I do have that proposal, but this is so important. I've got to figure a way to get it all done. And if it's not me, I need to develop my team so that my team can get some of this stuff done too. But either way, something's got to get done. One of the things I do in my engagements is I, I challenge all of the executives and all the principals, and then I ask them to cascade this exercise down through the organization. And I say, here's what I want you to do. I want you to answer this question. What 25% of what I do today should I give to somebody else? What, what am I doing today that's of less value? I need to, I need to make some space so that as a, as a principal level person, I can do. And then the corollary question is, what 25% should I take from somebody else? Typically from my boss or, right? So if you started thinking about that, what would you, you know, what would you give up? 
what would you need to give up? You know, sometimes it's something you really like doing, but it's not as high as value added as something else the firm needs. And so explicitly going through that, challenging yourself and thinking about it and raising your own self-awareness, you know, for instance, it's quite common, I think, for people to, to kind of say, you know what, I, I need to get, I need to be less involved in project work and more involved in either developing new clients or developing my team, right? So gosh, at the end of the day, it's all, it's, it's hard work. It's hard work. You just got to want it, I think. Right. But I mean, what you're going to offload is probably something that someone in your team wants to learn and do. And it gets into like at every level in the organization, it's like success without succession is really not success. So you have to always be thinking about what you offload because it's, it's a, it's a, it's an employee or talent development strategy. Um, Well said. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine if we were all kind of like in the, on the, in the gymnasium on the floor and I had my, here's the 25% I want to get rid of and here's the 25% I want to take. And we just wandered around until we say, oh, you've got the matching cards, right? You want what I want to give. You're, you're the person I'm supposed to be connected to, right? And you could kind of do that all over the firm. And it's been my experience that that's, that's a real possibility, right? There are people in the firm saying, how do I get into this? How do I get a piece of this? What do I need to do next, right? Right. And it's a huge engagement strategy because, you know, people want that. I mean, talent wants that level of transparency. How will I get ahead? What, what is my path forward? And they have a strong sense of what leaders should be doing today. And if you tell me you're too busy and not getting the stuff, that's a huge red flag for talent today. And so, I mean, it's like there's not just pressure on the peer level, but I think more and more today, there's there's pressure from the your hypos below yeah. who want need you to be efficient and effective. And if not, they recognize it. And so you might not retain that talent. And so you, you kind of need it from, you know, long-term growth, external, you know, re- responsive to the market, responsive to change and all that stuff. You need it at your peer level, but you also need it below. So, I mean, leaders are feeling the squeeze if they're aware enough to see it and they'd be able to respond. That's um, right. Right. But I, I do want to switch. You, you yeah. talked, I, I know you're working on an upcoming book that's talking about, you know, really some of this, you know, engaging and developing, educating leaders in the firm about developing the next generation. Can you share a little bit about, you know, what, um, what the goal of the book is and what, um, yeah. what, what you're doing, what, what, I guess maybe what some of the opportunities that we're not seeing are. So it's, it's a great segue from where you just were, because I would have said, when the high potential people in the organization are looking for how do they take the next step, what do they need to do? And we miss that. This is what I call eating your leaders. You're eating your young here. You're eating your future leaders, right? Eating your future leaders. And so the, the, the working title of my book is stop eating your leaders. Stop doing those things that are turning off the very people who are sitting there waiting. And so let me give you an example. This is something, this is a dynamic I see over and over again. I, and I'll tell you a story. I go into a firm, it's a 45 person firm. There are six principals. It's in the Southern US. So the principals are all sort of middle-aged gentlemen, right? Very, very well accomplished gentlemen. And I sit down, I have a conversation with each one of them individually. And they all tell me essentially the same story, which is, this is a great firm. We're doing really well. We're really proud of it. Of course, we can make a few things better here and there, but over on balance, we like what we have. It's a really great firm. Then the next day, I'm down at the other end of the building, sitting in a conference room with the four or five junior designers. Each one of them has two to four years of experience. And in the middle of that conversation, 
one of the young ladies almost breaks down in tears. And the quote is, she says to me, John, this firm is killing my soul. And that's just an example. But the way I sort of describe that in general terms is you go into a firm and you and the senior executives say their attitude is, one of these people going to step up. We're giving them all kinds of opportunity. And at the other end of the hallway are the junior people saying, when are we going to get a chance? And that disconnect is very common. Now, some firms, it's sort of a minor issue. Some firms, it's like a a volcano about to explode, right? It depends on the individual people and the context and the situation. But in all cases, I think we're eating our young in a way because we're missing the opportunity to grab a hold of them and do something, right? That would help position them for success. I love the way you said success and succession, right? Right. Well, how do you, I mean, so, I mean, okay, we can always blame it on the next generation or blame it on the leader, you know, the future leaders. But if I'm a current leader, it's my personal wealth. And if I'm a shareholder, I mean, I'm an owner, it's my personal wealth and I'm the leader big L right now. So it's really my responsibility to figure this now to figure out how to connect. If I want to retain the legacy of the firm, if I want to get bought out, if I want to maximize the value, I need to figure it out. I can't get frustrated and say, wait till they step it up. I've got to figure out how do I inspire them? So, I mean, that's just the way I look at it. I mean, how, how do you see bridging that gap and and, and starting with the leaders? Because I mean, I think it's the, if you just sit around and wait for someone to take your job, that's not really being a leader. Um, And and not only so, so how, how do leaders sort of get the message and then what do they do to sort of bridge that gap? Yeah, so I, I I don't want to imply that I think this is easy. I think there's a lot of hard work and a lot of soul searching. And right, and that example, not with the they're sucking my soul or breaking my soul, but but I mean I I could compare it to two other regions in the country of a very similar discussion I just had with current leaders and then the the next generation as far as that disconnect. So it's it's. Uh, it's all around. So here's where I would, one, one of the places I start with the existing owners of the firm and kind of, and sort of a message to the industry overall. We, I think we're thinking about succession all wrong. Let me explain. You have a 50 person firm or a hundred person firm or 20 person firm, right? The here's what I would say. The chances that you have the right people in your relatively small organization who can step up, take over, and have all the skill sets and all the experience and all the acumen necessary to perpetuate your organization is super low. (laughs) The paradigm of most owners is, I don't know exactly how this is going to work out, but it's going to work out. Somehow this will work out. What I, my message is, no, it isn't. It's not not work out well. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Trouble. You're, it's going to end up suboptimal, right? The, the person is not, or the team that takes over, they're not going to be able to perpetuate the firm, or you're going to end up selling, and then, you know, it, but not at the highest price, right? Because you haven't solved these issues. So, and I only say that not to be a, you know, sort of a pessimist, but I think we need to start over at the other end of the spectrum, which is if we don't do something, this isn't going to turn out well, right? And I agree with that. I, I agree. That's the, how are we going to make this happen? Right. So now the question is, what's the, what's the something? 
Next problem, next problem, the typical paradigm of the owner today, I'm thinking, you know, 50, 60 year old, <laughs> 70 year old, right? Their typical kind of way of looking at this is, I learned all this stuff. Nobody taught me anything per se, right? I figured out this, we sort of uncovered, you know, yeah, but you are the product of 10 or 15 or 20 or more years of development. Now you're gonna, <laughs> do you have 20 more years to teach these kids? No, you, you know, you go, we've got to fix. So that implies we got to do something differently. Then if I kind of, and I'm always on a little bit thin ice sort of talking about generations in a, in a general stereotypical sense, but I would say that appetite in the younger folks is, I want to get involved. I'm ambitious. I want a piece of this. I just want somebody to help me figure out how, right? I don't like the uncertainty and the, and the, you know, go figure it out yourself and do your own thing thing in the same right. way that people in, in my generation did. Right. Right. And it gets into the, uh, do I, I want a coach and a mentor, not just a supervisor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so back, so more specifically, I think the components of this, you know, how do you, how do you do leadership development right in a more programmatic and sustainable way? I think kind of like with our strategic plan, a very candid assessment of where we are, <laughs> what's good, what's not so good. And that's all about creating motivation and a vision for what we're trying to accomplish. This is what, this is the firm that I want. This is how the, this is how this needs to happen. Right. And just really wrestling with a lot of those things. Then I think three major components is what does training look like here? Um, and that could be, I think, a mix. And at least in my, in my system, it's a mix of sort of in the classroom, boot camp. It's a mix. Of, it's uh, online modules. It's experiential learning. You know, it's project work. There's all kinds of, there's so, but training is one umbrella. Right. The next is mentoring, something different, you know, buddies to buddies, one-to-one, -one, figuring out ways to connect people. Some organizations do that better than others, but most of them, I think, could benefit from a little bit more explicit right. focus on that. Right. I'm going to walk you through this entire process, not just when it's convenient, but you, because you have to accelerate that, like in the, the, the right. 10, 15, 20 years, we need that in three, five, seven years, you know, right. we've got to accelerate that process. Right. So that we need to be on client, going on client business together and you need to be sitting here and yes, there's, you know, we're going to figure out how to pay for that and all that kind of crap. Right. But yeah, more so training, mentoring, and then a whole bucket around what does, what does, communication and, and understanding around career path look like, you know, here's what we're going to do for you. Cause what, what's missing, I think in most firms in, in this industry is we, we sort of hire people. It, nobody knows exactly what the road is, right? Whether it's climbing up a ladder or, or excelling because you, you get an opportunity out here on the horizon you go over to an office or you start a new service line or, you know, there's different ways to do it, but but when when I when I went to work for a big company, somebody sat me down and said, "Here's the way this works. You'll get this kind of job, and then you'll get that kind of job, and then this. And the reason why we do all three of these is because it prepares you for this. And then, you know, if you go really well through those, then maybe you'll be a supervisor next. And there'd be there'd be some construct there, right? <laughs> right. And I got the same thing back in the early '90s at Metcalf and Eddie. I mean, they were very very clear. Like this is this is the path. You want to do this route, you go here. You want to do this, you do. And I appreciated that. I had a sense of which path I wanted to go on. Exactly. And and now, so 
So too often it's kind of just left. Um, well, here, I'm going to, I'm going to teach you how to do something, how to bust up this pile of rocks. And then you're going to do that for a while. And then I may be thinking at some point I'll take you off that and I'll teach you how to, you know, how to solve this wood pile over here. Right. But if you're stuck busting up rocks for a couple of years, you're going to be that young lady saying, if I have to do this for the rest of my career, you know, right. My soul is crushed. So I just think, so there's training, there's mentoring and there's career pathing, right? And then kind of building that into a more sustainable system. And the way that looks to me for most firms, again, if it's a, you know, if it's sort of a 50 or 75 person type firm is taking, I, I tend to deliver this sort of a turnkey thing. Here's what we're going to do. Because they mostly those kind of organizations don't have much structure. Right, right. They're, they're working on the point of developing systems and a way to do things and formalizing because one or two people can't keep in control of everything. I mean, right. four people can't stay in control of everything. That kind of firm is usually about there's a few people in charge and we, and we can identify that there's a half a dozen people coming up behind. What do we need to do to get them more prepared, right? If I move up to, you know, firms of 200, 300, 500, they usually have pieces of this in place, leadership development programs or performance reviews or, you know, they've got pieces. But there's usually some things that aren't working very well. It's not, it's not taking, it's not systematic. It's right. and not fully aligned with the vision. Right. And yeah. Right. So then you figure out, okay, where do we, where do we plug into that and try to make that system better? And even, you know, when you get to really highly mature organizations that have been at this for a while, you often find there's, I mean, you know, right. There's, it's, it's a tough and complex business. If you look around, you can find something to do to, to make this a little better. But I just think, man, this is, Pete, this is, in my view, one of the two existential threats in this industry. I, I would say existential threat number one is if you don't have people in the firm that can go out and get to work tomorrow, then you're not going anywhere. And, and too often, that business development skill and acumen is concentrated in too few people, the rainmakers. But, but existential threat number two is who's going to run this in five years and 10 years? And it's, as I tried to suggest a minute ago, it's not going to happen automatically. Right. And, 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 and there'll be people who I want this, but once they get a little taste and be able to be able to get a piece of this and, and by being mentored or coached through it, they might say, I don't want this anymore. Or there's somebody else who really is good at it. It's just a matter of testing. And probably for every position, you, you need a bench of three to really figure out who is the one that really wants it or will shine right. or I mean, let's in, in a lot of context, the founder and very successful principal of a firm might have to be replaced with two or three people. Yes. From, from, from a skill set perspective and from a, this is, there's a lot of newness happening and it's very, the systems are built around that one person and their personality or that in that division. And now the systems have to be different and two or three people need to do it. So it, it gets into the succession planning, how many people, and that might be that you'll never find the one person who can replace Michael Jordan right away. No, in the Chicago Bulls couldn't either, but it, it's like, there's a whole team that might be necessary in that transition, but you almost want to start it while Michael Jordan's still around. Yeah. Yeah. To, to, to extend the sports analogy, the Patriots get credit for this idea of the system, right? But there are other teams that have that kind of, you can see that, right? What the reason why they are sustainably successful is they figure out how to do it with the team they have. Right. And so now we've now the, 
the guy who was a really great receiver is gone. And so we're not going to throw the long ball this next year, right? We're going to, we're going to sort of figure this out with another team. So I think that's, a, I think that's a, that's an apt analogy too. And, and honestly, I think this is a, this is a limitation that you and I and most of us have as individual human beings. If you ask me the question, who's going to take over for me, who, you know, what is my succession plan? I think for many of us, our gut instinct, our gut instinct is I'm going to look around the firm for somebody who looks like me, acts like me, thinks like me, you know, who another me. Right. And that's, I think it's a much better answer to step back from that and say, well, what is it I'm doing? <laughs> is there a better way to get that stuff done? Right. Um, the Italians have a, have a saying that's, that translates to after a fat Pope, a thin one. And the idea basically is, Hey, let's don't get somebody like me. Let's get somebody really different. Right. Cause undoubtedly there's a different way to kind of skin this cat to think about this business and, in the, in different ways, but that takes a bit of courage because there's going to be some risk involved in that. Right. And, and if you have a team of people and a line group of principals, I mean, it, it gets back to the, you know, th there are different skill sets that are needed today. And, and I guess trans transitioning, you know, 15 years between top principals, you know, whatever that um, the succession plan is. I mean, there is a set of different skill sets and different behaviors that are necessary to be successful. I mean, the skills of the eighties are different than the skills of, yeah the nineties different than the skills of today. So, you know, who, who has those skills or who really has those behaviors? Cause I guess you can learn the skills and you can learn the behaviors, but who has them, who's got that natural strength and, and who are there today to take over. I mean, there's a lot of, um, yeah. a lot of different elements at play, but I think talking about it and having those discussions um, and internally, I mean, it does get to your original point with what can we control? We can, we have the players we have, how can we play the game to be able to maximize what we have? And if we have a, a need, well, let's go find it, but let's be true to who we know who we are, be true to who we are, because then we can attract somebody who really fits us or is an add to our culture. Yes. Yeah. Well said. I, I think that's ultimately kind of the, the, the core piece of it is decide what I want, do the best I can to get to, to defend what I, what I'm after get the right people and the right clients and the right sort of business model around that because that's I'm in control of that a lot more than if I just go for a ride. Right. And, and if we start early enough, we don't have a crisis <laughs> and we make better decisions when there's no crisis around. Yeah. Well, it's you know? interesting if you've ever, if you, when you look at a financial model for ownership transition, just a finance, you know, sort of, and, and if it's one of these kind of models where you can adjust the time horizon, these are super powerful demonstrations. You say, well, what is, what is the, what is the cash flow of transition look like if I have seven years and now crunch that down to three years or spread it out to 10 years? That's just the transfer of the money. And what I always say about this is, um, I say ownership transition is mechanical and leadership transition is magical. Because really, if you think about it, or another, another thought is the best time to plant a tree is 10 years ago. <laughs> and right. the second best time is today, right? So you, you really, and it keeps coming back to, there is no such thing as starting too early in this. And we don't, you can look around, think about the U.S. Army or the Marine Corps 
or big corporations or the or or the Catholic Church, you know, there are big organizations in our society that think about leadership development and transition and succession as being a core part of their mission. Right? Who's going to be the next pope? How do I build how do I create the generals of tomorrow? Right? That's what I think more professional services firms need to do if they're interested in building sustainable legacy, you know, kind of businesses that, and, and I keep coming back around to fast future. Remember my context is here, boy, it sure ain't getting any easier. Doesn't look like it's getting any easier to me. It looks right. like it's harder, faster, more complicated. You know? Right. And whether you're going to transition the firm internally or transition the firm, you know, externally through M&A or a great business, you know, merger. I mean, they don't have to be negative, but it can be a positive. The more we have our internal ship in order, the more value this, there is for everyone involved. I don't so think it's just good business planning, no matter what yeah. our ultimate exit strategy is That's as right. leaders. That's right. Absolutely. So, and it's more fun. I, I mean, that, and that's the thing. I, I'm going to love what I do because people are engaged and I'm teaching and I'm coaching. And that is a major driver for a lot of people. I mean, the work is great. We're doing tremendous work within the communities or, or what we're doing to serve professionally. But if we're having fun and we like the people we're working with and we know we're making a difference in the lives of others and creating these job opportunities, I mean, that's a lot more fun than the projects. I mean, the projects are just the tool that we're using to do, you know, organizational development and people development. And, and that's just fun. It's funny you should say that because I've actually said something very similar. I used to, so I would say, you know, I, I, in my experience, I'd say my early years at Exxon, it wasn't, it wasn't obvious to me, but I'd say kind of here's their deal. They, they were really, really invested in the idea of leadership development. They just drilled oil and gas wells to pay for it. It's almost exactly what you just said, right? That's turning the business on its head. Right. And it's the, and now, now we're focusing on the people. And today, I mean, I, you know, I, st I get into this, you know, we're, we've got four major elements. We have to be super successful in business today, or particularly in the AE space, projects, profits, people, and purpose. And the projects and the profits we've been, we're pretty good at now. I mean, yeah. we've got the projects, the economy is great. I mean, we're, we're pretty good and we're better at business in a lot of ways, yeah. but it's, you know, our focus now especially today with the talent need and, and how society and, and demographic changes have occurred, people and purpose drive the business. And so we can't just say, hey, we got great projects and we're successful, come join us. It's how are we investing in the people and what purpose do we have? And if you get those two pieces, they're gonna drive the business, they're gonna drive the projects, and they're gonna drive the profits. And so it's, a it's the same way we would be talking about it, but it's a different way to look at I, it. Yeah, it's very well said, very well said. You know, one of the, one of the one of my favorite companies that I think execute, there's a bunch of good examples, but one of them that really has codified this well, the Rich Carlton hotel chain, their mission kind of concept is ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. And I, and I, I just, I'm just really attracted to how compactly they put together this idea, right? At the core of it is what you said. If you really, if you want to take care of customers, at a certain high level, the way you do that is by taking care of the people who actually do that work, right? Right. And both the, both the clients and the talent have high degrees of dignity. Exactly. Exactly. And in our business, I think that's really worth thinking about because it is so focused. All, you and me and everybody else 
is we're putting 80, 90% of our passion out there on the field every day taking care of customers. It's not, it's not so instinctive to say what I need to do is balance that out a little bit more, or I need to take care of customers through the staff. Right. And, 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 but we've been, that's been beat into us in a good way. I mean, because it's right. We have to serve clients and we have to amp up our client service. And this has to be more than even just client experience. It's going to be client transformation. There's so much more we have to do to differentiate ourselves, but we're, we're missing out on the talent piece. And, you know, I look at it at an extreme example. Um, and this is like a lot of our conversations, they just go. <laughs> and so we're, we're going to have to wrap this up, but you know, what's client service to, and I'm a huge fan of client service and I'm a client service nut, but taken to an extreme, it can create a toxic work environment. And it's yeah. just one case like Amazon, but, it, and they can do it because they have thousands of people lining up to want to work at Amazon, but a lot of firms, we don't have that. And so we've got to learn to take care of our, um, of our talent as the means to serve our clients. And, and I think that that's a, that's a little bit of a mindset shift and clients are very important without clients. We don't have a business, but without talent serving those clients, we don't have a business and the clients it's harder to get. I mean, it's harder to get without talent serving the clients. We don't have a business and it's harder to get and retain talent today than it is clients. I think you're right. Right. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. Let me so, you, I, do I have time to share one more thing with you? Absolutely. So I, I, uh, as a part of this leadership thing, is something that's really been really, um, really interesting to me and I'm fascinated with. I, I, I've sat down as a part of my program a number of months ago to work on a specific module in my, in my sort of leadership development experience. And this was around how to have difficult conversations. And the reason I was working on that is because I'd heard, I'd heard so much feedback from client organizations over time. Can you teach us about that? That's a problem we have here, right? This sort of, uh, you know, just we're too nice to each other. It's Nobody wants to bring the bad news and hold us really accountable. Right. So I sat down with a mindset that, yeah, I'll do a little investigating. I'll kind of put my experience and my hat on and, and I'll come up with the, you know, sort of the one hour module on what to do there. Well, I bought 14 books. I did a bunch of research. I talked to a bunch of people and and as I got through that process, it just got deeper and deeper and deeper until finally I had this little post-it note next to my computer and it said this, it said, all conversations are difficult conversations. And what I, you know, as I kind of thought about this more explicitly, here's the, here's the connection I made. All, you know, hard conversations morphs into all conversations because anything meaningful is is going to be, you know, challenging and difficult and, re and, and involves two different human beings or more, you know, trying to figure out, right? So, so difficult conversations became all conversations and all conversations was just another way of talking about communications and how many clients have you had, Pete? You know, it's just like, have you ever seen a firm that has the communication thing figured out, <laughs> right? There's always work to do there, right? So to me, I looked at that as like, so really conversations turns into communications and communications is fundamentally about relationships and relationships is about leadership to me. You know, so it's like ultimately my definition of what an exceptional leader is, is somebody who puts way more time and energy than seems normal into relationship building communicating, hanging out, checking in with people, just relating. And I have to admit as an individual, a lot of this stuff just, it, 
it's not where my instincts are. Yeah. No, but, but how, what better way to be connected and aware and be able to get the straight scoop on what's happening, not the filtered seven times before the C-suite gets it. I mean, you know, and, and then be creating the psychological safety, creating the, the avenues of innovation. I mean, all that is, if someone feels safe in a relationship, you're going to get to the truth that much faster and you'll have the, the system set up to have those deep conversations and be able to share truth and love and all those things that we yeah, right. just tend to avoid. I, I had a conversation with a CEO who's about to retire, a client firm this a couple of years ago now. And when I sat down to do an interview with him, I said, so tell me about your day. And he said, John, I was afraid you were going to ask me that. Then I've transitioned most of the stuff I used to do to other people. And he says, I don't feel like I do anything anymore. All I really do anymore is sort of walk around the building and talk to people about mission and vision. And I said to him, to me, that's the most enlightened definition you could ever have for an executive. Don't have anything to do. Right. And then, and, and then get then but, take care of my team. <laughs> right. But if, but if someone wasn't, working on the, those three buckets. Maybe they weren't bringing in the work and they weren't oh, yeah. managing the work. Th then that would not be a sign of encouragement. I mean, that would be like, what are you doing? Like get, you know, get, roll up your sleeves. But because those other systems are in place, you can now reinforce in our busyness, the mission, vision, and values. Because I mean, that we will fall prey to the projects and the profits day in and day out because we're busy in this client demands and all that stuff that happens. And then we have to be reminded of the mission, vision and values. And when that comes from a leader, it means something. Yeah. And yeah. so that that's almost just maintaining the order and the, the inspiration. And so if that's the leader's job as all the messy stuff of business happens and we're making progress and someone can say, listen, look, I'm seeing it all. We're making progress. We're staying to the mission. I, I think you're right. I think that is the, a great leader in, in, a, in a well sort of orchestrated and organized organization. Yeah. 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 All right. So, um, all right, well, I, we should close here. Um, and any, but anything before we do, I, I mean, is there anything else that you think that we should, we should add or you'd like to add? You know, I have a slide in a lot of my decks that said the kind of the bottom line message here is you and then in parentheses I said and me are moving too slow. You know, you obviously you and I are proving out tonight that we can sit here and talk shop for probably you know the whole night, right? And we're passionate about it. And we're kind of into it. At some point, success is really about stop talking, start doing, get something done. And so that's, that's, that's always for me a bit of the bottom line is I think you need to in, engage the team. I think this discussion and debate and wrestling with tough questions and trying to build alignment around that is super, super important. But at the end of the day, and I have to admit, it's been a, it's been a long life lesson for me, right? Ideas don't matter. Execution of ideas matters. Right. And, and if you get alignment, the exit, it might be a little bit of a slower start, but you actually get there and you yeah. can continue the race versus, you know, not having the alignment and not going. But I, I think there, there's a cost to inaction um, and there's a cost to getting there slowly. I mean, in, in the marketplace and recruiting talent, I mean, you missed the talent. If you had your mission, vision and values and you were living it authentically and you shared it and you did this extracurricular project over here and you did this, well, then that senior VP would have come to you. But because you didn't do it for six months, they went somewhere else. 
And so there's a lot of missed opportunity by not getting to where you need to go and where you want to go fast enough. And so um, I think that's a great way to close. So how can, how can listeners get in touch with you, learn more about um, what you're doing, your books and, um, and your firm? Yeah. Well, thank you for asking. Yeah. You, you can certainly find out uh, more about me and, and us at, uh, at the website, uh, jdoring.com, J-D-O-E-H-R-I-N-G, jdoring.com. You can send me an email at john at jdoring.com. Uh, and I'd be more than happy to, uh, you know, sort of have a discussion, talk about how, how we might be able to collaborate together, uh, whether or not you, you know, if, <laughs> as I think you and I have proven out here this evening, we, we, we love, uh, we love wrestling with this stuff. It's kind of what's driving our mission. Well, excellent. And I'll have all that information in the show notes too. So people can, can click the link. So, uh, but John, thank you so much for your time. I think, you know, listeners get an inside view of basically two consultants talking about the consulting industry, you know, as far as from a management consulting and strategic planning side. So, I mean, this is an inside, you know, conversation. Uh, so people get to listen in. I don't know if anybody will, but I've enjoyed having it. <laughs> Same here. Just, just like all of our other conversations. <laughs> all right. Well, again, thank you very much. And I, uh, I hope you have a great night. Yeah, thanks, Pete. Talk soon. Well, that's a wrap. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show from. There are links on my website and in the show notes to do so. And please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps to get us established, and I truly appreciate that. It also helps get the word out so that together we can collectively grow and positively impact the lives of others, both inside and beyond our organizations. So thank you. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsprove.com. That's www.actionsprove.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.